Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of In the Spirit of Horse. My name is Mosey Truitt, and this week on the show, you've got me, just little old me here. Um, I'm I'm the host and the guest uh, because this week we're going to be talking about uh, the steps I like to take when first starting Liberty Horsemanship. This is probably the number one question I get, and it is, how do you begin Liberty Horsemanship with your horse? And the reason I haven't approached this topic before is because it feels um, there's just so many aspects to it, you know, and Liberty Horsemanship in the way I see it is more of a philosophy than, um, than a method. But that being said, I know that a lot of people you know, you can talk kind of esoterically and you can talk philosophy on this for hours, but if you feel like you don't have the tools to bring it in with your horse, um, you can feel a little lost. And I know that in the beginning, I definitely felt lost. And I can tell from a lot of people when they message me that, you know, you want something that you can actually go out and take to your horse and kind of, um, make tangible and ground into this earth. So, So I've been wanting to do this episode for a while and I just thought, you know, it needed, it needed time, it needed effort. So when is the day I decide to do it? I decide to do this episode on, on basically the day of that I have to record it. Probably like the most last minute recording I've ever done, um, on this podcast is the the day I decide to record this really, uh, what I've considered an important episode, but you know, it feels right. It feels good. My intuition is saying, do it today. And I think there's something, um, about taking the pressure off that it doesn't have to be the super built up episode, but rather something that I can just dive into. And, uh, yeah, something I want to, I want to do with you guys and something I would just want to get out there. Cause I do think this is one of the more important, um, questions to answer to really help people, know where to start. And, you know, there's so many different ways and and I'm sure we'll get into that. And it's not one method. It's not just, there's this one set of steps to take, but I can definitely explore some of the things that I like to personally touch on with horses when I'm just starting to get to know them and kind of starting this horsemanship. So I'm essentially just going to be going through some of my notes of what I teach in my Foundation of Liberties course. So obviously, you know, that's a whole weekend course. I'm not going to be able to fit it into one podcast, but I'm going to be talking about steps from um, from the packet and from the, the content and uh, the different things we do in that course. So without further ado, welcome to the episode and let's just dive on in. start, uh, the Liberty courses, I usually start with these three pillars, um, because there are, you know, a lot of different things to focus on. And again, this isn't one method, but there are a couple of things that I think, um, are important to keep as your focus. 
And the three different pillars are in the beginning relationship or connection, relationship and connection, learning and games, and energy slash subtlety. So for me, the foundation of my uh, of my horsemanship is relationship. So relationship is really it's the priority and um, it is what everything is really focused around that and the happiness and well-being of the horse. The happiness and the well-being of the horse probably coming first actually and relationship being part of that, you know, the relationship to the horse and and as far as the actual horsemanship goes, um, I'm really focused on how can I develop a relationship with this horse that is nurturing and fulfilling to both of us and, um, and really founded in something, um, profound and equal. So we're going to touch on the needs of the horse because I really believe that the needs of the horse have to be fulfilled first before kind of exploring these three other pillars. But, um, but we'll get into that. So the other two pillars we have, um, number two is learning and games. And this is the aspect that I think most people when looking at my Instagram think of, and it's the more quote unquote training aspect. It's, um, you know, it's, it's learning theory. It's anytime you see a trick on my account or, a uh, you know, the things that I guess are a little more flashy or, um, or the games that I play with the horses. Cause you know, I like to focus on training, not in the mindset of training, but more in the mindset of games and enrichment. So this is the pillar. I think you see a lot visually. Um, it's kind of the visual people have in their heads when they think of Liberty horsemanship. Um, and it's super fun, real great, but it is only one pillar. It is not the foundation of everything. Relationship in my book is the foundation of everything. And with the learning and games, we get to the third pillar, which is energy and subtlety. So if you know me and you know a little bit about my training or you've read some of my captions, you know that um, being subtle and getting into the language of the horse on this really light, energetic level is super important to me. It's probably the aspect of uh, quote-unquote training that I find uh, most intriguing. And really what that is about is going from screaming our cues, because I think a lot of times we scream our cues at the horses and, and we're a lot louder than we need to be, to quieting our cues and seeing how soft we can get in our asking. Because I really do find that the quieter we become, the much more we hear from our horses. So quieting the language and kind of getting tapped into the realm where they speak, which is on this very energetic level, um, I think it, it does wonders for your communication and also wonders for your relationship and wonders for all the lessons from the horse that you'll pick up. So yeah, those are the three things we're basically going to talk about. And, uh, and all of it starts with a new perspective. So I always say that the philosophy of this horsemanship is usually their harder part to fully grasp rather than the quote unquote training itself. 
because so much of our conditioning and so much of how we interact with horses has to do with the beliefs we've been taught around training and around horses and, um, and, and, you know, with that also like just the literal conditioning of our bodies, what our responses are, what our reflexes are, you know, it, it takes a little bit to change if you've, let's say, um, a horse comes into your space and you're very used to immediately like shoving them out. You know, it's just an example. It it takes a little bit of like counter conditioning your body to have that not be your immediate response if that's not the response you want anymore. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, first grasping the philosophy in our minds and, um, really thinking about it, that that's where I started. And that's where, uh, shifts really happened to me or for me in my horsemanship. And then embodying those shifts is where it really shifted my relationship with the horses. So, uh, let's look at the new perspective. Um, one of the big parts of the respect or of the perspective is changing the goal from, you know, training goals to relationship being the goal. Uh, for me, you know, if my intention is relationship over, you know, I got to get this trick down or I got to do this riding move or I got to win this competition, you know, getting in touch with what my intention is, which for me broadly is usually relationship and the horse's well-being, that changes my response uh, in different circumstances a lot. Because, you know, if my intention is that I have this, um, this training move I really want to get, then, you know, when things aren't working out exactly as planned, um, my response might be a lot harsher because it's kind of, you know, whatever you need to do to get the training response. Um, then if my intention is relationship where, you know, valuing my connection to the horse and honoring what we have and, and not betraying trust is more important than, getting a training move. So, you know, you can still head for the training move with that, but I find that changing that perspective and that intention really shifts your, um, how you innately handle certain situations. So if you have your intention really strong before you go in with the horse, um, I think it sets you up in any challenging moment to, feel more aligned with your response. So along those lines, uh, another perspective change is letting go of expectations. And this, this is a hard one. I think in general, it's kind of a hard one to let go of the expectations of what we want. But if you've listened to my story about how I started with Annie and how I started Liberty Horsemanship, then you know that this was a huge shift for me because Essentially, when I first started, I think I, in the teaser of this podcast, I explained this story really briefly, but when I first started, um, you know, I wanted to work with Annie in a new way and I would let her free into the arena and take away all pressure and restraints. And I was like, do you want to, do you want to ride? Do you want to play? You want to do all this stuff? And, um, all these goals I had in my head and she wanted nothing to do with any of them. And she basically ignored me for weeks or months. And I was still so focused on, you know, I want to ride bridalists. 
and it just was not happening. And really it was almost like the moment when I finally said, okay, um, I'm letting go of those expectations. And even if all I do is sit in this arena with you and I'm next to you, um, and we never do, uh, these goals that I have in my head, then that's enough for me. And this is enough. And as soon as I accepted the present moment and accepted Annie really as being enough, she started to want to engage with me. So that letting go of expectations, you know, we can have aims and we can have intentions and we can even have goals because I do think there's an appropriate time for goals. But, um, but in general with horsemanship, I think letting go of the expectations makes a really big difference and it makes everything that you get as a gift out of the horsemanship uh, truly a gift, truly like this extra. And it kind of changes your perspective to one of being um, excited and, and grateful for your time with the horse, whatever it is, versus having expectations can often lead to disappointment and, um, and feeling not enough or feeling that the horse is not enough or that your relationship is not enough, you know, all this kind of lack. So, um, you know, the horse feels that too. I really, really feel that the horse or think that the horses feel that deeply. So that's another huge, huge shift. Um, and then the last change in perspective, which is where this one, I think, um, is sometimes harder for us equestrians to get our mind around, but it's basically that all living beings have a right to choice around their bodies and around their decisions and their freedom. So this one's a little more difficult because if you believe that, you know, we all have dominion and the right to dominion over our own, our own bodies, if we're riding a horse that very clearly doesn't want to be ridden, um, we're using force and coercion to, to make them do something they don't want to do. Um, we're kind of going against this belief and, um, we're essentially like taking something that isn't ours. So I have a lot of compassion around this one because I, I know that I am not perfect on honoring, you know, everyone's choice all the time. Um, but I certainly try to, and I think it's made such a huge shift in my horsemanship and my relationship with the horses. I mean, such a huge shift when I think about it, like to not feel like I have right, um, over the dominion to ride or the right to own their bodies in this way and do whatever I'd like to them just because I say so. They feel that so deeply when that changes, when that belief and attitude changes. And all of a sudden, they usually are a lot more willing to actually give um, rather than just submitting because we've basically forced them and told them if they don't listen that um, they're going to be punished. And it's really, really about honoring the horse's right to say no, which is the same as honoring their right to say yes. Because I, I really feel that, you know, if a horse or anyone doesn't have the right to say no or doesn't feel like they can safely say no, because either there's going to be punishment involved or, or force or the 
the decision is going to escalate and their choice is going to be taken away, then what do their yeses even mean? You know, if you don't have the ability to say no, what does a yes even mean? You don't get a true yes. So that is kind of key to the idea of liberty horsemanship in the way that I define it, because I want the horses to be saying yes because they actually want it, and I want them to have true choice whether they want to engage or not. Um, Because in this horsemanship, they don't have to engage. If a horse says no and they don't want to engage in play or engage with me or ride or, you know, do any of the things that, you know, I'd like to do, that is totally their prerogative and they can say no without fear of punishment. And I'm not going to escalate the cue or pressure um, and, and they can say no. So that kind of is like a big cornerstone to this training. And again, I'm not perfect on it. And I definitely have moments where either I'm not hearing what the horse is saying, or I am hearing and I'm trying to kind of pretend like I'm not hearing, you know, like the moments where we want something so much and, and, um, we're getting an answer we don't want. Um, I am totally, I totally have compassion for that because it's hard for me too. And I've been doing this for a long time to, to always listen and always respect the answers we get. But again, I I think it, I think it really changes things in your relationship when you do. All right. So moving on, those are the new perspectives. Again, I think that that is really, if you can get your mind shifted on these things, the training part itself is actually pretty easy, like quite easy in comparison. So the first uh, pillar is relationship and connection, which honestly should just be like the base. This is the foundation of everything. But I have a few uh, suggestions of how you can um, really nurture this aspect of your horsemanship and of your relationship. And the first, I'm sure you've heard it before, is quite simple. Excuse me, sorry. Uh, The first is just spending time with your horse with no expectations and no agenda. And I'm sure most of you have heard this, but it's because there is something really profound in going out and being with a horse without asking anything of her. I think it's particularly profound for the horse because for so many or in so many different um, traditional um, disciplines and horsemanship, this doesn't happen often. The horse isn't usually approached by a human and nothing is asked of her. You know, there's usually something being asked and usually not asked. Actually, there's usually something being demanded and Some horses, when you first go out, you know, if they've been very traditionally broken and you go out and you just spend time with them and you're not, um, demanding anything of them and you have no expectations on them, they don't even know what to do with it. Um, because they're not used to interacting with humans in that way. But can you imagine a relationship where every single time you saw that friend, you were demanding something of them or you needed something from them? You know, you, 
in human terms, that's kind of like, you might think of that person as being like a user, you know, not to label, but like, that's what I kind of think of when I think of a, a human that always wants something from you whenever you come around. And it's really hard to develop a real friendship when you don't have, you know, downtime where you're just getting to know one another. So with all horses, when I start, and also as I continue with them, I try to always make sure that I really prioritize time with no expectation where it's all about getting to know each other and just sharing space together. So, you know, you can go out with the idea of being rather than doing. And sometimes it's hard, you know, I remember going out and like wondering, like, what am I supposed to be doing right now? And, um, do I just like sit with them or like, you know, like meditate? And especially in the beginning, I wasn't necessarily like, like the idea of just being out there and meditating, uh, felt really foreign to me. And, and you don't have to just go out and, and, you know, sit there confused. You know, you, you can do, uh, sorry, my leg is falling asleep. It's making it very distracting to talk. Um, but you can like bring a book, you know, you can go out and bring a book and read. Or one of my favorite things to do is to go out and get to know them by asking the horse what they like. And a lot of times I do this by asking the horse how they'd like to be touched. For some horses, when you're first doing this, it's going out and finding out that they don't want to be touched. You know, a lot of horses are used to people coming in with the the idea that, you know, I should be able to touch my horse everywhere and they just have to put up with it. But when you ask the horse, would you like to be touched? And if they say no, if you respect that and you don't touch them, uh, that's really profound. And I think um, they notice that shift very much. So, you know, if the horse says no, they don't want to be touched, fully respecting that and um, also not feeling disappointed by it. No, it's not a reflection of you. It's, you know, just a boundary being set and that is totally fine. And, you know, feeling grateful that you can respect the horse's boundary. Um, I've, I've met a lot of broken horses where I've asked if they've wanted to be touched and they say no and to be very happy, like, thank you for being honest with me. I'm not going to touch you. And, and it really changes something in their mind and they look at you really perplexed, like, what? Like, I'm not used to that from people. And then usually I found that in the next, uh, in the next few days or weeks or, you know, however much time, then they're all of a sudden asking for you to touch them, which is a beautiful shift to see. But for the horses that do like being touched, you know, it's asking how they like to be touched. Do they like to be scratched hard or do they like to, um, be, uh, like stroked or do they want it on their withers or do they like their butt scratched? You know, it's a fun thing to do. I think it's very bonding. It's asking the horse what they'd like. It's kind of, um, giving from the heart to them. And it's really fun because like most of the horses that I've worked with consistently, like getting to know them, start pointing out where they'd like to be touched and they all have different ways of pointing it out. And, um, and then you're starting this kind of communication that is really just give 
or really based on uh, free giving, which I find really beautiful. And for instance, like Annie doesn't actually like to be touched that much. She has some very particular places she like scratched when she asked for it, but she's not a horse you necessarily go out and just start hugging versus, you know, Leah just wants you on top of her scratching every piece of her and, uh, and like really getting in there and digging and massaging. So, so, you know, it's getting to know your horse. Um, Sorry, I'm just going to check through here. That's basically like one of the tips I have for going out and being, but um, there's no right or wrong way here. Um, And I would say like a majority of my time with the horses is this and is being with them in this way. Um, Much more than training which I think sometimes people are shocked to hear because they would assume that training might be the foundation and this is like the side exercise, but it's the opposite. Um, This is the foundation. This is what I spend most of my time with the horses doing. This is also the same time that like I go out in the night and the horses are sleeping and, and I sit down and then they all start to come over and fall asleep and lie down next to me. This is what enables, um, all of that bonding that honestly is the most meaningful to me. Um, so yeah, I do, I do a lot of, a lot of this. Um, but now we're going to move on to what you typically see more of online because, uh, it's more picturesque, I guess, which is the learning and the games. And this is what you think of more as training, like quote unquote, traditional training. And I really like to think of learning and games as a way to deepen your communication and also provide enrichment to your horse. So those are kind of the intentions I bring in here. Um, it's a lot about communication and a lot about providing some fun to your horses. So now I'm going to go into the needs of the horse because before you can really get into learning and games, um, I really feel that it's best if you're addressing the needs of the horse first and if they're fulfilled in these other ways first. And I know that, you know, some lifestyles and barns uh, might not lend themselves to meeting all of the needs of the horse in like the ideal way, but there's always, you know, things we can do to, um, make it better for our horses. So needs of the horse, we start with the basics. I think most people know this, there's food and water, food and water, pretty obvious, very much a need. The next need, I think most horse people know it's herd. So herd also includes safety. It, it means other horses, So, you know, it it is best if horses can live in a space with other horses. They're definitely designed for that. They're incredibly social animals and they need friends. It's not a, like an extra thing. It's definitely a need. And, you know, this is where it can, like the lifestyle and where you're keeping your horse can limit you a little bit. If a horse is in a stall and, 
you know, isn't in with another horse, maybe you can find a horse friend to turn them out with to try to fulfill this need. You know, it's best if they can live together, but if you're limited in some way, there are ways to help this need um, by letting them sniff over the fence at least or hopefully be turned out together, um, get to see other horses, you know, all the different things we can do. We can also be heard, but honestly, because we're not living with them 24-7, for a horse to really feel safe and secure and not stressed, they need some kind of horse friend around them, you know, pretty much all the time because that's just how they're designed. And with that, they also need space. That is the third need. Um, horses are really big animals. And, uh, when you think about in the wild, how much they, how much they walk and how much they run and how much exercise they get, um, yeah, space is just a vital piece of their life. And, and, it can be hard to find space. I know that here in California, it can actually be really, really difficult to find affordable, um, like actual pasture for your horses or something accessible in that way. Um, and even like the pasture, like my horses are in really big pastures, but even still, they're like a big box, you know, and, and they could use more space. Um, but for the most part, you know, they're pretty fulfilled, but, um, but you know, if you have your horse in a stall, which is not ideal, but is sometimes just the case. And I've, you know, I have no judgment that sometimes that's just all we can do. You know, there's other ways to fulfill this need a little more. And whether that's, um, you know, letting them out like in turnouts and letting them have like significant time out there, um, Another really good one is taking them on walks where they get to decide where to go, you know, within safe limitations. So, um, the key here is that they need space where they can make decisions and they can explore and they can use their body. So going out and riding is not really fulfilling their need for space. Sure. They're getting exercise, but they're not choosing how to use their body. They're not using, um, their mind and exploring on their own. So, um, yeah, if you do have limited space going on a walk where you ask the horse, you know, where would you like to go? And, um, and letting them lead is a really good supplement for this. And, um, and you know, you can go out with like two horses, if you and a friend and, and you ask the horses where they want to go and you let them explore and you let them graze, on the way, you know, again, all of this, if it's safe. Um, but I think there's this idea that if you let a horse lead, they're going to like take over the dominance and you're never going to be able to get them to listen again, or, um, you know, they're not going to mind you or something. And I just, uh, totally don't, um, buy into that belief system. And, um, and I think you can definitely have uh, more of a dialogue with a horse where sometimes, you know, you say, where do you want to go? And you follow their lead. And then if there's a time where you like, you need to get back to the barn, you can ask them to come with you. And there can be that kind of more equal dynamic. And it's not going to be like you're overthrown forever. The place where I do see issues with that, though, is if a horse has been really, really broken and really, really... Um, 
given no freedom and, uh, and angry about it. And there's certain horses with this kind of personality, they might, you know, when you finally give them some freedom, do, do actions or do behaviors that we might be thinking of as, or interpreting as like, um, Oh my God, I was just on the tip of my tongue. Uh, like abusing the power, not abusing. It was, um, or taking advantage. That's what I mean. Where they, they like take advantage and it's like, oh, well, if you're not going to make me listen, then I'm not going to listen at all and, and have that rebellion. But I think that, um, that rebellion where then you're like, well, now it's unsafe or now they won't listen at all, uh, is more of a reflection of a really unbalanced, um, relationship. So if they feel like they have no power or no say, um, and then all of a sudden you're not, you know, beating them over the head and and you're giving them freedom, uh, to do what they want, it might seem like they're taking advantage of it and, you know, really getting clear on what are those behaviors because the taking advantage is very much like an interpretation of their behavior like what are the actual behaviors and knowing that the more the horse feels heard and the more equal your relationship becomes, the less that is going to appear. But again, that's kind of like a specific situation that, you know, maybe I could talk about on another podcast because it would be a lot to get into here. Anyway, moving on the next need of the horse. And I think this is one that less people are aware of is the need for mental stimulation. And I think that many, many horses, domestic horses are missing this in their life. And in extreme cases, you see things like, you know, pacing and cribbing, which can also have to do with space and herd. Um, but you know, we have a horse or I know a horse that's like out in a pasture with a herd and and some of these things are coming up anyway. And, um, yeah, mental stimulation, the problem of a horse being chronically bored. I think that's a condition, um, a lot, a lot of our domestic horses have mainly because we just don't think of mental stimulation as a very important need of the horse. And this is where I think play comes in. And where it can be such a good supplement for our kind of domestic life lifestyle for the horse. Because if you think about wild horses, you know, they're walking many miles a day. Um, They're constantly seeing new things. They might be walking in a similar mountain range, but things are changing in the wild. And, um, and they're really equipped for that. They are curious. They're so curious and they're explorative and they are just have been designed for, you know, centuries to more than centuries. Um, but anyway, they've been, uh, designed to constantly be seeing new things and to think about them and be smart with their environment and to be constantly like mentally stimulated and to play too. So when you think of like a domestic horse that's in a stall and then getting out, you know, like 
every few days or every day to go ride or have a turnout in the same box and then get put back, it's so different from what the horse and their mind and their body has been designed for that, I mean, you can imagine the chronic boredom of that. Even in the pastures, like I was saying, like for my horses, you know, they're big pastures, but there's still like this box that isn't changing all that much. And if I just leave them in there for really long amount of time or long amount of time and um, things don't really change and they're not getting out in other ways, they will get very bored. Um, and, and again, that's where I think play can really come in and assist this need. Okay, so now we're going to get into a little more grounded, like real things you can do with your horse when it comes to play. And the first thing I want to talk about is operant conditioning, which is basically um, the science of how we learn. So this is the science of how we as humans learn, how dolphins learn, how animals learn, all animals, horses, dogs, basically mammals. Um, although I've read some things about fish too, which are pretty, pretty cool. Um, but yeah, basically the science of how we learn. And this is the foundation of that I like to teach when it comes to play and quote unquote training, because this information and understanding how we learn is not just beneficial to positive reinforcement play, which is something I'm going to talk about a little bit more, but it's also pretty much the foundation of all training methods. You can explain why traditional horsemanship works very well. You can um, explain why natural horsemanship works, you know, what learning quadrant they're working off of. And you can explain things like positive reinforcement and, and liberty play. Um, so it's such an important thing for, I think, every horse owner or uh, horse person um, to really study and, and know. And not that you have to go study and... Um, like sometimes I think it can be a little overwhelming to people because it seems so science because this is a lot of science and like that really intrigues me and excites me. But, um, I think sometimes people feel like it might take some of the, the magic of horses away or take away some of the mysticism, but I really don't think it does. I think it helps you really understand why these things are working so that you can make really good choices for the horse and for you and, um, and understand in times of confusion or in times of not being sure what to do, you know, what your options are and what's kind of going on. So what I'm going to talk about next is something I definitely think is really beneficial to know and, uh, wonderful to bring into your training, but it's not like I'm going out there every single day and I'm thinking like, in every moment, well, this is the learning quadrant I'm using right now. And, you know, uh, going into all of the different, like vocabulary of it when I'm with the horse, I think the vocabulary is really important and it gives power and, um, 
and choice through knowledge, but it's not something you have to be intimidated about um, taking away anything from the authenticity of your relationship. Anyway, all of that being said, I'm going to go into the four quadrants of learning theory. Again, learning theory being how we all learn. So I'm going to do a really simple overview. And uh, I hope that I'm, I say this all right. Again, like I didn't prep super much for this podcast, but I do have my notes here. So any like super learning theory buffs, if I, if I get something a little bit off, um, yeah, just go easy on me. But, uh, but I love this stuff and I've been studying it for a really long time and without, yeah, without further ado, here we go. So there are four quadrants of learning theory. So basically these four different aspects of how we learn something and they are negative reinforcement, positive reinforcement, negative punishment, and positive punishment. So the negative and positive here doesn't necessarily mean good or bad. It means adding something or taking something away. So uh, let's start with negative reinforcement. Negative reinforcement is when something unpleasant or painful or adverse ends. So negative means it's ending. Um, another aspect of this too is reinforcement means that something happens more often. So you're getting the behavior to come to happen more. And um, punishment means that the behavior is happening less often. So negative reinforcement means you are, um, you're taking something away and it's going to make the behavior happen more often. So, uh, negative reinforcement, I'm going to give a horse example because I think it's easier to kind of grasp these when you get an example, but basically it means again, that, um, something unpleasant or painful ends. So let's say you're riding and I'm going to make this really simple uh, cause you know, cues can get complex, but there's this kind of like basic idea that let's say if you want to turn to the right, you pull on the bit to the right. And then when the horse turns to the right, you release. Um, so negative reinforcement is like basic pressure and release. So with the bit, you're putting on something adverse, you're putting on a pressure or you're putting on pain. And then when the horse listens, you let go of that pain or you, you release the pressure. Um, so a lot of horsemanship, both traditional horsemanship and, uh, natural horsemanship deals a lot in negative reinforcement. You're working with that a lot. It's basically all pressure and release. So that's something that, um, that most equestrians really understand the pressure and release aspect because it is used so often. So then we have, uh, let's go into negative punishment. So again, negative punishment means that um, uh, something is being taken away and that it's going to happen less often. So you are usually ending something uh, enjoyable or good. So uh, an example of this would be you take food away from a horse. So a horse is doing something you don't like, and let's say they're eating, they're eating some hay, they do something you don't like, like this is a really weird example because I don't think of a time that most people would do this, but 
Um, but you could, let's say you're giving your horse grain and they pin their ears at you and you don't like that. And you take their grain away. That is negative punishment. So that next time they would, um, possibly not pin their ears at you. Then we have positive punishment. So positive punishment again means, um, you're going to add something and it means that the behavior is happening less often. So you're adding something adverse you can add something adverse or painful. So, um, let, let's say a horse turns in to bite you and you punch them in the face. <laughs> so you add a punch. Um, the horse is probably going to be less likely to turn in to bite you next time around. Uh, so that's positive punishment. And then you have positive reinforcement, which basically means that you are adding or giving something and the behavior is happening more often. So usually for, uh, like with me, that means you're giving something good or enjoyable after asking for something. So an example of that is, uh, you ask your horse to come over and line up next to the fence. Um, and then they do, and you give them a scratch on the back. That's positive reinforcement. So like I said, a lot of horsemanship is really based in negative reinforcement. So pressure and release, adding something adverse and then, um, and then, uh, taking it away, like releasing something adverse when you get the desired behavior where play in, in, let me start that over in playing. <laughs> I'm having a hard time with sentences. I'm sorry, but basically in Liberty and horsemanship in Liberty horsemanship, as I define it, most of the play that we're doing is based in positive reinforcement rather than negative reinforcement. So that's kind of this big shift. And that's not to say that you're only using positive reinforcement all the time, but um, positive reinforcement is what I consider like liberty play. And the way I do it, um, and the way that I think most people do it is in positive reinforcement, you are giving a true ask. So you're not demanding. So for example, if you know you ask a horse to lift their leg and they don't do it, um, nothing happens nothing bad. They don't get punished. Um, the cue doesn't escalate, uh, nothing happens. And so it's much more of a real choice for the horse because they're not going to fear punishment or fear anything adverse coming in if they say no. So with positive reinforcement, positive reinforcement, we're really asking these things. And if we, um, if we like what we see, then we'll reward, but we're never punishing and we're never adding pressure or anything adverse, um, for the most part. But the important thing to me with that is that, um, all these things that we're doing are real asks when it comes to play. Yeah. So got through that. I feel like, <laughs> uh, sorry if I, if that was not that clear or if, uh, 
or for anyone who's like a learning theory buff, if that wasn't, um, (laughs) as clear as it could have been, but, um, hopefully you get the gist of what we're talking about here. And, and again, if you want to get more into this and I really recommend that you read this book and I recommended this in the, the podcast where I, I gave some books, ideas to read for Liberty Horsemanship, the reaching an animal, reaching the animal mind by Karen Pryor explains this so well, explains learning theory so, so well. And, um, yeah, I highly recommend you read that book. Um, no matter your horsemanship style, because it will give you insane insight on why, um, your traditional or natural horsemanship or liberty horsemanship training is working. Okay, so let's go a little bit more into positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement from negative reinforcement reinforcement is a pretty big mind shift because you're going from um, kind of demanding and using pressure and release with the horse to asking and rewarding. And I always think it's really interesting that... Um, as equestrians, we don't really have an issue, um, with making a horse doing it, do something. We don't really have an issue with using force or pressure or even pain to train. But as soon as we think about rewarding the horse, um, people get uncomfortable. And I think that is such an interesting dynamic and says so much about how we relate to the horse and our relationship with her. Um, like why we're uncomfortable with rewarding when we're not uncomfortable with forcing or pressuring. So it's just something to think about. Um, yeah, so let's go into the different types of rewards. So the basic formula for positive reinforcement play is ask And then if you see what you like, reward. So rewards can be for horses, scratches or praise or even more play or food treats. Um, Really, it's anything your horse really likes. So this is another place where first getting to know your horse and like knowing how they like to be touched and knowing what their likes and dislikes are really, really helps because you can... Um, you can figure out what your horse likes. Like for instance, for Annie, most scratches, like if someone just came in and started scratching her and tried to use that as a reward, that would be more like punishment for her because she does not like strangers touching her that much. And she certainly doesn't like them scratching her body. Um, but you know, on the other hand, India, like I, I teach a lot of lessons where we do, scratches as the reward because she likes them a lot of times more than treats. Um, so anyone can really come in and like scratch her very deep on the withers and on her back. And she just loves that. So I'd say that's one of her higher rewards. Um, so, so when I teach a lot of time, we use food treats because especially before you get to know your horse and know what they really like, um, Treats seem to be pretty universal, that most horses like some sort of treat. Um, So like when I'm teaching with a horse that I don't know very well or with people where the horse doesn't know that person very well, that is usually an easy go-to, but you can really use like 
you know, whatever your horse is like. So for instance, Annie really likes an audience. She really likes applause and she really likes like high praise. So the more people are like, woohoo, Annie. And the more she's like getting oohs and ahs and like the more enthusiastic I am, the bigger all her movements are. And the more she just like wants to show off and strut and it's so much fun. But like that kind of excitement coming from me with a horse that is very shy or a horse that is feeling insecure could be way too overwhelming. So it really takes knowing um, your horse's likes and dislikes, like I said. Okay, and moving on. So if you've heard of positive reinforcement, you've probably heard of clicker training. And, you know, I think there can be a lot of different, like, thoughts around what clicker training is. But um, for the most part, clicker training is just a way of adding a marker to positive reinforcement. So um, it's really a language. It's not, the, the way I use it, it's more of a language and not like one method. It's not a method that you do this, this, this with every single horse and it's always going to work. Um, using the click is more of like establishing a language with your horse where you can make cues in a completely different way with one horse to the other, but you're building a language first starting with words so that later you can like string them into sentences. And this is why learning theory to me is much more of a language than, um, like a technique or like I said, a method. So, um, so let's say you wanted to teach Spanish walk and you wanted to learn that with your equine friend. Um, let's say the first step to that, you know, you can break it down to as many little steps as you want, but the first step might be, can the horse pick up their feet without my touching her feet? So let's say you're, you're, you're working on that and the horse picks up their feet. You could say something like yes or good, and then you could reward. And that's essentially what the click and clicker training is doing. You're marking, um, what it was that you liked. Um, so you could do that and you could have every time the horse picks up their foot, you could say yes, and then give her a treat for instance. Um, the issue with doing that, you can totally do it, but um, if you say yes, and yes is your marker, it can take a little while to say that. You know, it's not that instant, and it's hard to make your yes sound the same every time. So if you're just doing big movements, like asking your horse to run over to you, or you're, you're uh, doing these big, complete kind of um, movements like trotting together, running together, stuff like that, um, a yes could work out fine. But if you want to do movements where you're targeting, like, like you want to get your communication so dialed in that you want to ask for just one movement, like one muscle to twitch, like for instance, Annie knows how to do crunches where she's basically just like, um, like crunching her ab muscles and that's all she's doing. And it's so targeted to this one group of muscles and it's so specific. Uh, I need something that's like a little bit more, uh, 
refined than saying yes, because in the time that she's crunching her muscles, she might also be putting her head up and she might also be shifting back and she might also be, you know, swashing a fly off and all these different things. She could think my yes had to do with the putting the head up. So the next time I ask her, she puts her head up instead of um, crunching her muscles because the yes went for too long and she wasn't sure what I was talking about. So for these more specific moves, I like to do a click. So I don't actually hold a clicker in my hand. I just have a mouth sound and I go, hopefully this won't be bad audio, but I basically go, which is a cluck off the back of my throat. Um, I find that to be the easiest. Some people don't know how to make that click sound, which um, is totally fine. You know, you can pick any uh, sound that you can make consistently sound the same and that's easy for you to do. And I like just having it in my mouth because I don't really like to hold things. Like I don't really like to hold ropes. I don't really like to hold clickers or uh, really any like lunch lines, anything. I don't really like, I don't want to, I don't want my hands like filled. Um, so I just do it with my mouth. Another, uh, oh, sorry, uh, rolling back a little bit, basically saying like using a click is basically just like saying, yes, you got it. Um, and another misconception I feel a lot of times around using the click, um, as your marker for positive reinforcement is that sometimes people think there's something magical about the click itself, which is not the case. Um, it's not like you're going to start clicking at your horse and it's this magical language. They just know, and everything shifts and, you know, uh, there's nothing magical about the click. All you're doing is making, um, making a language with your horse, like this clear language with your horse that you can use as a tool for building sentences basically, and for building communication. So so I use that, I kind of think of the click as like punctuation in the sentence, like like a period. Um, and then I think of energy and subtlety, which is more the language of the horse, as the actual words. So now, hopefully that was kind of like a good overview of uh, learning theory and um and definitely look into it more if you're curious. It's super helpful. There's a lot here I have written about, like why it works in nat natural and traditional horsemanship, and you know how round penning works and join up and stuff like that. It all can be explained um, with learning theory. It's very interesting. And if you want me to do an episode on that, please let me know. Um, but right now I'm going to move on to energy and subtlety which actually I'm missing the sheet here, but that's okay because I got it in my head. Um, okay. Energy and subtlety. So I really feel like the language of the horse is incredibly subtle and very quiet, um, and yet very clear. And, um, and it, it kind of lives on this energetic level and it's tapping into that energetic level that I think the real magic in training comes about. 
and it's getting in touch with how your horse moves and how your horse communicates through her energy that you can start doing these really amazing things training-wise together, and you can start building this incredible communication. And I think the most important aspect to getting in touch with your horse's energy has to do with getting a lot quieter. Because if we're busy screaming our cues at them and screaming our communication, we're blocking off listening and we're making it harder for ourselves to get in touch with the language and the subtlety that they're already living on. So the first step to getting in touch with energy has to do with quieting your cues. So I'm going to use backup as an example because I think it's a very common one. Um, you know, with nat or with traditional and natural horsemanship, we're very used to escalating cues, which takes out a lot of choice, like we talked about before, um, to the horse, but it also makes it very hard to actually give the horse space to learn on their own and to listen to the horse. So an example of this is, oh, and it also dilutes your cues, which, um, makes it harder to be subtle. So an example, a lot of people, when you want a horse to back up, let's say you, you're standing in front of the horse and you say back and the horse doesn't know what you're talking about. And you, uh, and then you say back again and the horse still doesn't know what you're talking about. So you start walking towards them and saying back, back, back and waving your hands. And then the horse starts to back up, but not quick enough. So you start putting on a little more pressure and back, 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 and like, um, waving your hands a lot. And now the horse is really backing up. Um, I find there to be, uh, some aspects of this that are not actually helping you or the horse or your communication. So one is escalating the pressure. Um, Again, you're taking away the choice because the horse feels that, you know, if the first time you say back and they don't listen, the pressure is going to escalate. So there really is no choice because if they don't listen, um, the pressure is just going to increase. The second problem with this that dilutes your cues is that you're asking again and again. So what I like to do, and I like to start from the very beginning like this is let's say you stand in front of the horse and I, without putting any pressure forward, will say the vocal cue back. I don't want to say back again, because if I start saying back, 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 all of a sudden my cue now has gone from being just one back and having that all I need to do is say back to the next time I'm going to have to say back three times because that's what they're learning. And if I continue to say back, 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 and I, and I um, walk towards the horse and I start adding more of a cue and more pressure, all of a sudden that's going to be what I have to do in, to get the back. So I try to stick by only asking once. I only ask once and it's a real ask without the pressure. So, you know, in the case of back, when you first stand in front of a horse and you say back, likely they're not going to know what you're talking about. So first you're bridging, you know, you have these two questions with the horse. One is, do they actually understand what I'm saying? 
And second is, do they actually want to? Are they motivated to do it? Um, so in the beginning, you know, the horse probably doesn't understand what you're saying. You're standing in front of them. You say back, they have like no clue. So on an energetic level, um, I like to feel what back feels like in my body. So I will stand in front of the horse and I will feel like if I was a horse and I was backing up, like what would that feel like? And I would start to kind of visualize that sensation in myself. And I'm watching the horse as I do this. And as soon as the horse even leans back a little bit, or I feel them think about back, I can click and I can reward and I can give them scratches and tell them it's great. They're great. And, um, and I reward the smallest little try because in the beginning you're just rewarding the smallest little bits. And that's kind of what's nice about this training too, is you never have to get to a place of frustration if you know that you can always take it back to the smallest of steps. So let's say they, they just like lean back a little bit and I reward and I'm like, yes, that was great. Um, you know, now they might try it again and they're going to lean back again and I'm going to, um, and I'm going to reward that too. And yes, that's so good. And then, you know, the next time maybe they lean back and I wonder if they'll, if they'll go a little bit farther and I'm still staying in my same position. I've never escalated pressure. I am only saying back once. And this time they decide to take a step back and they try it out and I'll click and I'll say, yes, yes, yes. That was so great. And you can just keep building on your cue that way. Never having to escalate your own cue, never having to explain, you know, hyper explain or micromanage the horse. The whole time your cue has stayed the same and has stayed really subtle and it has stayed really soft. Um, and you can build the cue and by allowing them to add to it and add to it and add to the criteria. And, um, and the freer the horse feels, the more they're going to offer. So, you know, first you get one step and you're rewarding for one step. And once they really get that one step down, you say, okay, this time I'm going to wait and see if they'll take a second step. So they take one step back. You haven't clicked yet. So they're, they're wondering what, what they can do. And maybe then they lean and they take a second step back and then you click and you reward and, um, you celebrate that and you just very together start building these cues that, you know, you can take something really complicated and step by step by step build, um, build it with these really small, simple movements. And you're really letting the horse build it. Um, and not just micromanaging or pushing their body into these positions. So, you know, sticking really subtle or staying really subtle with your cue and starting really subtle with your cue from the beginning is insanely important in my opinion. Also, not repeating your cue is really important. For instance, if I ask back and I don't get a lean, I don't want to ask back again and then dilute the cue and now I have to say back twice. Um, I'd rather reset, take a minute, breathe with the horse, like walk around and then ask it and then, you know, start again, but not asking again in that same moment. So asking only once. Um, yeah. And then, and then primarily getting in touch with the energy of the horse. 
for instance, how I start sidestep with most horses has to do with getting in touch with their energy and how they move. And like, I I tell people this a lot that I'm training, but let's say you want to get sidestep and, you know, to do a side pass, you have to cross the front legs and you also have to cross the back legs. A lot of times, you know, we, we cross our legs and we can get that front leg cross pretty easy with the horse. Um, but to get those back legs, like how do we energetically, um, suggest a crossing of the hind end? And I like to literally pretend that I have a hind end and in my mind and feeling it in my body, feel what it would be like to cross that back end. And I swear, like when you do this and when you put the visualization out there and you feel it in your own imaginary hind end, it, it makes a huge shift and an incredible difference. Like sometimes as soon as I visualize that, all of a sudden their horses will cross their hind end for the very first time. And you've put no pressure on it. You've just felt it in your body. And the more you get in touch with individual horses and the more you get in touch with your own body and how that feels, the easier this language becomes. And I find that this energetic language becomes more of the foundation of your communication. And again, like the clicking and rewarding becomes your punctuation. So, you know, the more in tune you get, the more you're talking on this energetic level, you're using um, this energetic movement as your words and then you're um kind of you're making it clear and adding cues like very clear cues to things by um using the positive reinforcement the clicking and the rewarding so yeah that's a you know it gets a lot more we i get a lot more into it the more um even in the first introductory to Liberty Workshop, the Foundation of Workshop, or Foundation of Liberty Workshop, we get a lot more into the energy, a lot more into the subtlety, a lot more into all these aspects. Um, But, you know, as a first lesson, um, yeah, I think this is pretty pretty much where I think uh, you can start. And where you can get a pretty good idea of, yeah, of how to begin these different aspects of liberty that, that you can see online and that you can actually tangibly bring in with your horse. You know, I'm, I'm at a point now where even like with positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement and the, all the different, um, learning quadrants and conditioning in general, I'm really taking a new look at conditioning and at, uh, what all of this means and what it means to ask of a horse and really give and receive from the heart. And that's something I'm really excited about now. And it's something I'm really, really exploring personally. But I think that these beginning steps of understanding learning theory and, um, yeah, of, of playing and engaging with the horse in this way that allows them to express themselves and also allows you to get in touch with their energetic language and really in, can enrich their lives. I think it's really valuable. And um, just even the shift from 
kind of a pressure and relief mindset to um, ask and reward is it's really huge for the equestrian world. I think it makes a giant difference and, um, and really it gets you in the mindset a lot more of, of giving the horse choice. And I think that's kind of the most important thing here. Um, I can do a whole nother episode about like correcting quote unquote bad behavior that would get kind of into, uh, the idea of asking for what you want versus trying to end something you don't want because they have very different, um, they have very different mindsets and like solutions. Um, so I think the whole idea of quote unquote bad behavior is a really, uh, good topic to get into. It's something that we also cover in the foundation of Liberty clinic, but I don't really have time right now. Horses as artist. That's another thing I'd really like to talk about. And it's about how this kind of play, if you make your intention to unlock the horse's creativity and you kind of take a step back out of leadership role and let them lead the creative aspect, um, it unlocks something really beautiful in the horses and you get to see their creative side just flourish and you get to see all their amazing ideas and, um, and they get to really feel expressive and seen. And, and that's been really profound. So, you know, I could do a whole other talk on that because that's another thing that we cover in the foundation of Liberty course. Um, but I don't really have time right now, but if any of these things sound intriguing to you guys and you want to me to make, you know, a separate podcast on those, I definitely can. Hopefully this has been clear. I, it's my first time kind of explaining this on just an audio medium. And I feel like I fumbled a little bit over some of the, some of the things I was trying to say, uh, and explain, but hopefully it made sense. And, you know, if you have any questions, I'm definitely can make a follow-up episode of your questions. And I'd really appreciate you sending those my way because I want to make this really clear. And if there needs to be a follow-up episode to make this really solid, I, I definitely want to do that. So yeah, thank you guys all so much for listening. Hopefully this was helpful. Send your questions my way. And thank you again for just tuning in every week, um, Friday slash, slash Saturday for a lot of you guys. And yeah, I appreciate you guys so much. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate everyone who's written a review on iTunes or rated and subscribed. Again, that really, really helps the podcast out and helps me keep it going. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, um, yeah, I will see you guys all next week with a brand new episode. Thank you.